Hello everyone, Simon here. Welcome to another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News, the first episode of Series 2. In a moment you'll hear me say that we recorded this episode on the morning of Thursday the 8th of September. Later on in the day we heard the news of the death of Her Majesty the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, obviously we don't discuss that in the episode. Um, we do discuss uh, matters about the Constitution, but that's very much focused on the UK getting a new Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss. Um, we decided to release this episode uh, this week in the normal time slot, um, so I hope you enjoy it. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, and we're back. Philosophy Takes on the News has been away over the summer, enjoying the sand and the sewage on the beach, but we're glad to be back with you for this PTOTN Series 2. Uh, I refuse to call it Season 2, although various websites dictate that's how I have to refer to it. Never mind. Uh, you may well know who I am, but if not, I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 8th of September. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, as it's done across the whole summer. Fighting remains intense. And this past weekend, Russia continued to suspend its gas supply along the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. There's been severe flooding across Pakistan, and the United Kingdom has a new prime minister in Liz Truss. So this week, we're going to think about that new UK government, think about how a new PM is chosen and about conscience in politics. And we'll also think about climate change and reparations. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. In fact, across the summer, as I think you probably know, there's been a hell of a lot of news, some of it uplifting, but plenty of dispiriting, depressing and ominous headlines. Which brings me to this week's guests, of course. Joining me today, we have Graham A. Forbes, who's Honorary Senior Research Fellow in Philosophy here at Kent. Hi, Graham. Hi, nice to be back. Uh, and we've got Piers Ben, who currently teaches ethics at Fordham University London Centre and who's recently taught at Roehampton. Hi, Piers. Hello, good to see you again. And we've got a new guest for this new series, Kieran Oberman, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the LSE. Hi, Kieran. Hello, it's great to be here. Great to have uh, you. Great to have all three of you with us. OK, so let's get to our first item then. Um, this week, uh, the UK got itself a new prime minister. Boris Johnson was forced to resign in the summer and we have enjoyed or endured a lengthy contest internal to the Conservative Party as to who will be its next leader and de facto prime minister of the United Kingdom. This is all against a very challenging background, war in Ukraine, a cost of living crisis uh, and so on. It raises, uh, I think, a few issues for all of us. and I'm sure we'll get on to uh, those. The one it raises for me is how Liz Truss has become Prime Minister and how she's been chosen. Uh, I think I'm writing saying that Liz Truss is unique. She's the first Prime Minister to be uh, chosen by people in her party uh, against the wishes of the parliamentary party. She came second in the in the election amongst the, the MPs. Rishi Sunak was first 
that Liz Truss won amongst the membership. So that that has happened in other cases. So Ian Duncan Smith uh, was second choice amongst MPs, but was chosen by the membership, uh, the Conservative Party, uh, a few years ago, and also similarly Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. But in both cases, they were appointed leader of the opposition. I think I'm right in saying Liz Truss is the first PM who's coming to the role through that that route uh, in that way. And that just raises a kind of very interesting question for me, which is uh, we've got a very small electorate, Conservative Party, but it could be another political party, and the person gets to be Prime Minister, even against the wishes, the expressed wishes of, of their own parliamentary party. And I suppose there's just a general issue then in, in this sort of situation, how we are as a country uh, choosing or allowing uh, leaders to be chosen. I mean, do, in, in a parliamentary democracy, we, we think that uh, we vote for MPs, we're voting for political party, and then someone is asked uh, to form the government in amongst the parliamentary uh, majority, and that all seems fine. But in this sort of instance, the convention seems to be creaking at the seams. So I'm just wondering what the three of you think about this and whether you can sharpen up the worry a little bit more. Uh, Graham, you've got your hand up. You come in first. Okay, so, I mean, let's think about the constitutional position a little just to get us going. So the the principle at work here is whoever commands the confidence of the commons to form a government. So that that is the criterion that we're working with. So there's meant to be a single individual who looks to be in a position to command the confidence of the commons. So what do we mean command the confidence of the commons? Well, it's it means two things at the same time, and you've, you've kind of drawn that out nicely. So on the one hand, it's the person who represents the will of the people who are not aristocrats, you know, the people who are not members of the lords or bishops or the monarch, those people. And we establish that by the having a party with a majority in the commons and that so so that party should be commanding the confidence of the commons and then they select a leader through whatever means they as a party choose to do so they could do it by drawing lots they could do it by dancing on a rope um a la jonathan swift's gulliver's travels whatever whatever means they want so i think one of the tricky things that we find with this constitutional principle isn't so much the the means that the party used to choose their leaders. It's that in the last 10, 12 years, since the Fixed Term Parliament Act was passed, the ability to change governments has, has been restricted so that you can have a situation, as we had with Theresa May, where the government can't do anything. There's no, there's no one who can actually get government manifesto policies passed, but they nonetheless can't get removed from office. And we had that again with Boris Johnson, that Boris Johnson was disgraced after he was found out to um, to have, I mean, he's not been officially found to have misled pro- uh, Parliament yet, but did it so blatantly that it's it's hard to conclude that he didn't do that. And lost the backing of his party. Many of his cabinet resigned. It became clear that he could not continue. So normally, without the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, that would have triggered a general election or triggered something very quick because the party couldn't stay in power under those conditions. So the reason we've got this very odd process where we've chosen, um, where the Conservative Party have chosen a new leader very slowly over the course of, you know, 
a number of months at a time when strong leadership would be very desirable is partially because the mechanisms for removing the previous leader aren't working as historically they would have done before the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Great. Thanks. Kieran? Yeah, so um, so I think it's a fascinating question. So, you know, we have these general elections, everyone gets votes, um, people do vote, thinking about who the leader is, is clearly a factor. And then sometime during the course of a um, government, the leader can fall. And that's happened. So it's counting up. I think it's, uh, f- we've had six prime ministers in the 21st century. Four of them have come into power in this way. And then when they come into power, it's just this the party who gets to decide. And that's odd. That's odd to have the person, the most important person in the country being decided by a small section because most people aren't even most Tory voters aren't members of the Tory party so so we've got this very restricted uh, demographic who's making this really important decision okay so how do we decide whether that's a good way of making uh, this decision or not uh, so what I think about is the literature on democracy that you know the philosophical literature on on why democracy is valuable if it is and there's two kinds of arguments for it so one is um that democracy has intrinsic value. It represents the people or it gives everyone an equal say. Or you know, There's different kinds of arguments for why democracy is so important, self-determination, these various big concepts being banded around. And then there's a different kind of argument, which is um, that democracy has instrumental value. It's, it's good for the achievement of other things we care about, such as perhaps economic growth or... Um, social stability or whatever it is freedom and so you know we can we can think through this issue taking either one of those now as it happens I don't really go for the intrinsic stuff I, I don't think democracy has intrinsic value I'm not convinced by any of those arguments and I think to the extent that democracy is a valuable system at all it's for these instrumental reasons now if you t- take that position that I do and then think about this question then you're going to have you're going to want to think about it not as in you know if you w- would say the intrinsic side of the argument you're saying like this is really really wrong perhaps you'd say this is really really wrong it should be the people who decide these really important questions and so we should have a different system maybe the different system would be everyone in the country gets to choose between uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak or um, or we have a general election or you know there's some kind of wider demos gets to decide. Um, but I go for this intrinsic view, uh, sorry, the instrumental view. So what I'm interested in is which system is going to have the better results. On that question, it's interesting to think, well, how would how, how is a leadership contest that's decided by a party different from a general election? Will it produce different kinds of leaders? And I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, and the reason for that is, is you've got different voters they have different ideas as to what makes a good leader. When you have a party deciding, we see this every four years in the US um, elections, when you have the party deciding that they elect a, uh, or tend to elect a more extreme candidate than um, is supported by the general population, or at least, you know, th- their preferences are different to the general population. And the leadership campaign uh, for the Tories this time was real strong evidence of that, you know, they were trying to outdo themselves to see who could be 
more right wing and the candidate that was perceived to be more right wing won the election. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if, if you go for the standard view that kind of polarization, extremism is a really bad thing, then we've got a reason to worry. We've got a reason to worry that a prime minister comes in uh, who's more more extreme, who probably wouldn't have been chosen uh, or might not have been chosen by the general population. Um, of course, Liz Truss has got to have to moderate her views. She's going to, as we see every four years in the US elections, people swing try and swing back towards the center after after picking up the primary vote but still she's made promises to to cut taxes and do other things so even if she's really flexible you know there's only so much flexibility there okay so is that troubling well i think it really depends on whether where you think the truth lies if you think the truth lies in 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 extremes you know whether it's extreme right wing or extreme left wing then maybe you're going to favour a system like this that that rewards those extremes. Um, although, of course, you're going to worry about extremism on the other side. But if you think the truth lies in the middle, then you're going to worry about the system like this. So I, I, I think it really comes down to, to, or one takeaway possibly is it comes down to where you think the truth lies in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, tax Pierce. Yes, I, I have no strong intuitions about which method of selecting the leader would be better. I think we should distinguish questions about whether we approve of the result of these procedures uh, from questions about the procedures themselves. And uh, one can argue, of course, that um, people at extremes of both left or right are more likely to be elected if it's left to the grassroots uh, sort of activists than the ordinary voters. Uh, That's probably the case. It was was actually Tony Benn uh, in about 1980 who proposed the whole thing. He was the originator of it, I think. He wanted the Labour leader this a long time ago, to be elected by the, the sort of grassroots who are more likely to be what would now be called hard left or whatever it was. Um, and, that, and that was seen, I mean, he, he certainly saw that as a democratic move. He thought it would, uh, you know, really somehow bring it back to ordinary people uh, rather than people who'd been sort of elected uh, by those ordinary people. Um, and similarly, I mean, with Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 was it when he was elected the same argument was used but i think we need to distinguish as i say the, the question of whether we like the result from the question of the procedure the reason why i have no strong intuitions about the procedure but i have an inclination which i'll explain um is that of course it's already the the the, the local activists the the party members who have chosen their mp and so if you decide it should be mps who decide who the leader should be you can say they've already been chosen uh, they've been selected as the candidate uh, for the party by the local party. So the grassroots democracy has already been satisfied. If the, unless I've got something very, very badly wrong, if I'm confused about the whole procedure. In that case, we can say, well, democracy has been satisfied already. Let's leave it, uh, have it at one remove, whereby those who've been, um, who've actually been selected as the, the, the candidate for the, for the particular constituency um, and been elected to parliament, uh, decide on the question. But, you know, I, I think clearly people worry about the results. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fan of Liz Trust. I mean, I hope in a way for the sake of the country that her leadership won't prove to be as disastrous as many people think, because we are in a, a crisis. And I think it would be uncharitable to say, oh, she's a Tory, just get her out. Let's hope she fails. But I think that you, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Kieran is right to say there's more likely to be um, a move towards the extremes. Of course, you could always argue that it, that what that extreme is just a, a prejudice word, and that sometimes extremes are a good thing, and that to, to present yourself as the middle position is just a rhetorical device. I mean, every position is the middle position between two extremes. I mean, 
you know, you, every, everything can present itself as being the moderate view. You can always invent some extreme to the further wing. But perhaps it, we could not get distracted by that. My inclination is to say that it should, I mean, if I really had to choose, I'd say it should have been the MPs who decided to, on the um, the leader rather than the constituents, just that it should have been and was the MPs in the end who decided, and in fact the cabinet resignations, decided to get rid of Boris Johnson. Uh, that wasn't put to, I mean, as far as the, the grassroots in this direct way. So, but that's just an inclination. I mean, I think the, the complexity of democracy, as Kieran said, are extremely complicated. I mean, what, what justifies democracy? I mean, there's a familiar argument against democracy that I remember my old colleague Gordon Graham rhetorically using at St. Andrews, which is say, well, it's a disaster for, for the reasons that Plato, Plato spelled out. You wouldn't put a ship, uh, in, in, you, you wouldn't put a sort of, or any old person in charge of a ship. Uh, to get it to its destination. So why would you put just any old person or just non-expert people in charge of a of a government? And it, it's a prima, it's a very powerful argument. I mean, of course, it's intuitively absurd, but we need to know exactly what's wrong with it. Uh, and as Kieran said, we, we don't quite know uh, what's wrong with it. Uh, and, and maybe we could get on to that. But I'm sorry to be rather rambling about this, but uh, my inclination is it should have been the, the party. Uh, the, I well, mean, the, the, another the, reason why you might want it to be the, the MP. So one reason is MPs, again, tend to be more moderate. So we've seen that in a number of um, elections, perhaps because they're worried about re-election in a way that the grassroots d- don't don't worry about that. Uh, and another reason, you know, if you went for this intrinsic view about democracy, then it's not just that they've been selected by the grassroots, but they've also won an election in which everyone got a vote. And so, and so it might be, although, the, you know, giving it to the grassroots seems might seem the more democratic thing to do, maybe actually the more democratic thing to do. Again, if you worry about this, if you believe that democracy has intrinsic value, the more democratic thing to do might be to leave it to MPs. Yeah. Um, Graeme, you come in and then I've got a few things to say. I mean, so so I suppose I side with Kieran rather than Piers on the idea that um, we might be interested in what kind of result we get out of whatever procedure we we choose, that we might not want to separate them. But I mean, I I want to be quite kind of practical about this in a way. One of the results we're looking for is someone who can command the confidence of the commons. So a lot of this is literally someone who can hold a government together, someone who can um, get the various parliamentary members of their party to act in concert so as to run a country. And one of the most compelling arguments for me for having the parliamentary party choose their leader is that it's much more likely they're going to follow that leader. It's much more likely that the government will be stable enough to survive and actually get work done, like get legislation passed, get policy carried out. That I, I tend to be somewhat Confucian in my political philosophy. What I really want is stability. I want a system that is going to work. Justice only can, comes in once government is able to function. Can, can I ask a question about that? Which is why? <laughs> why? Why worry so much about stability? I mean, if, if, if a government is doing a really bad job, then don't you want it to fall apart? No. Um, and can't, can't, can't you have governments that are really stable? that do really terrible things. Sure, but you can't have governments that are really unstable that do great things. Um, so so the idea is just a basic level of stability is um, required for governments to achieve anything. So, so the hope is with democracy, and it might be a, a false hope, the hope is with democracy is that people will elect better governments given the option. 
like if if that hope fails democracy is un- under threat but one shouldn't want chaos chaos is the thing to be avoided because even i mean just think of things that are politically uncontroversial that you you want just institutions that everybody supports to do the things that they're set up to do if you don't have stability of some kind those institutions do not function so you've had a situation in northern ireland recently where they have no executive that they've got a civil servant whose job it is to work out who gets money but they can only do so under certain limits and they can't fund things that need need money without some politicians approving of this and there are no, there is no executive this is a bad situation this for me is is the nightmare situation that northern ireland is currently in where you don't have a government of any sort let alone a bad one yeah so so okay so it's interesting so i certainly agree that you could have situations whereby um a government isn't functioning everything's breaking down and that's really bad and that we prefer a government of any kind but isn't it contextual i mean so i guess two thoughts what one is the government you know who's in charge that might all be in chaos and totally undecided and yet the country is working fine and we've seen various you know there was a time when belgium didn't have a government for i think it was you know months um months and months and months it was one of the longest times um that any any democracy has gone without a government and belgium carried on just fine think about italy incredibly successful country in many ways total chaos all the time at the level of leadership and yet the country carries on and then i guess my other thought was there's going to be times when when you could get to functioning government, but you've got to have a period of instability in order for the government to collapse and a, a new government to form. And we've seen that happen at various times as well. I mean, it's certainly, it, it can't be the case that we we prefer any stable government over any um, no, unstable that government. would be absurd. I, I certainly, certainly wouldn't prefer, defend that. Certainly prefer Italy. Italy. But- I mean, Russia's had stable stable government Italy hasn't I prefer Italy to, to, to sure. I think probably the, the thought about stability that Graham's I mean stability can cover lots of different things I mean I think Northern Ireland's a good example I think another example actually is the Westminster government where you see for the last few months I mean partly it's a strange situation because of Boris Johnson right but where you've got you know loads of select committees right in I mean we're talking parliament here so the NHS might be working or not working and and other, and other parts of the state, right? Courts are working or not working, as we can see. But in Parliament, you've got, you know, pictures after pictures on social media of select committees kind of saying, we're here to scrutinise a member of the government about some very specific point of policy. And the government hasn't sent anyone because there's no one to send or they just haven't bothered to turn up. I mean, that's a kind of that's a government that's not working. It's not not fulfilling the basic function where you want someone to turn up and then to be scrutinized by parliament on the details of a particular policy. I mean, if that isn't happening, that's that's really bad. Um, I think another problem about stability. I mean, I think you're right. Those who mentioned stability are right. States, it's very important. But governments might become unstable or at least paralyzed and directionless if they're trying to do too much at the same time. And so all these select committees, all these um, different interest groups, all these this panicky uh, reaching around for policies that probably contradict each other, but to uh, have to be devised on the hoof to satisfy instant needs, lead, if not to, if not to instability, at least to paralysis. And that's another problem with, um, uh, to, to be avoided. You know, instability on the one hand, paralysis on the other. Can, it, can I um, come in with some thoughts of my own? I mean, th- thanks for all three of you, because that's, that's really interesting. I think across 
all three of you. That, so my mind was ticking over again, thinking about the, the introduction and everything I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks. Because I think we've got a kind of tension um, that, that's shown up by the Liz Truss case when we talk about parliamentary democracy. We, we've kind of um, got a con- got a fiction, but it's a very convenient fiction and a very important fiction that we're voting for an MP and voting for a party. But I think, as Kieran said early on, of course, we've got in mind who the leader of that party is, right? But we've all, we've always been worried across this country about becoming a more presidential kind of country, but we're still a parliamentary democracy. And so in, in that situation, there's, there's a tension, isn't there? When you have a situation when a new leader has to be chosen, particularly if it's a prime minister, right? Who, who's got the kind of the main say here? Is it the parliamentary representatives or some subsection, namely the people within that particular party uh, that's, in, that's been voted into power by the general populace, or is it the party as a whole, right, in the country? It's the autonomy of parliament versus the autonomy of the political parties in the country. So, I mean, uh, you know, and, and the Tories and Labour and other political bodies have, partic- have certain rules about who's voting for their leaders, and it's slightly different. And, of course, I, I don't feel like I want to infringe on the autonomy of those parties to choose their leaders. That would be bad. And another thought, though, that when we're when they're choosing the prime minister, it feels like the general populace should have some say in what's going on, which is why I think the case of Liz Truss is so egregious, because it's, you know, the voting was, uh, in total of Conservative membership, was, was 0.3% and not all of them voted. So it's probably kind of 0.18% of the population that got to vote for the for the for the next prime minister and so there's an interesting question here i think about the autonomy of parliament the autonomy of political parties that help to you know run parliament and i think that's just something really strange and i also don't think that just one example um should mean we should change all the rules you know um extreme cases make bad law even so though this 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 case does show this up um as a as a problem i think graham go on okay so i want to throw a question back to you um just to sort of tease apart parties and parliamentary governments which is the coalition so no one voted for the coalition headed by david cameron with nick clegg as deputy prime minister no no one voted for that combination some members of the liberal democrats were extremely pleased that at last the liberal democrats were able to have some power and and to and to influence policy to bring it into the centre. Others were horrified and never voted for for the Lib Dems afterwards. But yeah, so I want to throw that question back to you. Like in that situation, no, there wasn't a, a second general election or a second polling of the public to work out if the options are this coalition. Or something else. What would we prefer? What What do you want to happen in that kind of situation? Uh, and yeah, nice. So I think that's a good example. So so I think my my thought about that is that when we're voting, we're voting for MPs and voting for parties, and then there's an assumption that we're voting for representatives who won't. I mean, this is a general point about certainly parliamentary democracy and, and, and representation. We're voting for representatives, and part of the view is they should reflect the views of the people, but we're also electing kind of, we hope, intelligent people who are going to exercise their own judgment. And this is a kind of very good case of that, where Nick Clegg then has to make a judgment as the leader of the Liberal Democrats about whether to go into a coalition with the Conservatives or not. And of course, you know, as we know, he he suffered politically for, for making that making that decision. So in a way, I'm, I'm more than happy that we, we then shouldn't have a call on the general election because that's what happened. And so thinking about that thought, 
then I don't know how that relates to the the, the the case we currently have, right? So, so but going back to Kieran's thought, which is a nice one, you know, those MPs have been elected by the general populace. They have some sort of authority. And then perhaps we should just say to political parties, we should infringe on their autonomy and say, whatever rules you want to come up with, Parliament decides that it's just the parliamentary representatives that get to decide who the next leader is, not the not the, the voting membership of the whole party. But I don't know, that, that feels a bit wrong to me as well. Note in the coalition case that both parties had to endorse the coalition. So it wasn't just the parliamentary parties that decided this. It went to conference um, and the conferences and the conferences approved it. So it is analogous in that sense, that, that it, these were decisions taken by two parties to go into coalition, not merely a selection of MPs to go into coalition. Good. Piers, Kieran, any thoughts on this? Well, I, I, I do think about um, previous elections and, you know, um, parallel universes. So to go back a long way, I, I wonder what would have happened if Kenneth Clark had been selected over in Duncan Smith. Now, that wasn't for Prime Minister, that was leader of the opposition. But, you know, a, a very um, authoritative, um, experienced person, Kenneth Clark, who is also very pro-Europe, would, would have been a very different leader to Ian Duncan Smith. And Ian Duncan Smith was, was, was a disaster for the Tories. And I think the MPs could see that in a way that the grassroots couldn't. And another parallel universe is one in which there was a, 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 there's a Labour government in power. And the Prime Minister falls for whatever reason, and a Jeremy Corbyn gets elected. I mean, you know, Corbyn, even more than Liz Truss, is exactly this kind of person, a person who's really popular with grassroots and not popular with the public. And so you could see, you know, in a way, that would be the the one way that you could have this radical left-wing Prime Minister um, in a country that, that typically doesn't vote that way. And what parallel universe that would be like whether we want whether that's something we want to be on the cards or not of course it? another interesting observation might be that uh, it's worth asking how concerned the grassroots voters uh, I, whether they voted for truss or for corbyn uh, were about the electability of the person they wanted to put in i mean there's a certain uh, view of well I, the word extremist but i don't like the word but you know let's say committed people at a particular wing of the party that are that they're ideologically driven, not that that's necessarily bad, and they think that purity, that getting the purest leader is the most important thing. And if the electorate don't like that person, well, that's the electorate's problem in a way. But we, we just have to sacrifice victory for purity. And I know Tony Benn was always accused of that. I think Jeremy Corbyn was accused of it. It's it's another interesting question in itself whether there's a moral reason for going against your own convictions in voting for a leader just to get somebody who you think is going to be popular with people whose opinions you don't like. I, I think that's a fascinating moral question. It's also a fascinating yeah. political science question, which is whether that's what's going on. Why is it that MPs are voting for these more moderate uh, candidates who seem more electable and grassroots vote for more extreme candidates? So one possibility is that, that they just have, they think that, being electable is is less important. Another possibility is they're just massively optimistic that the rest of the public are going to share their more extreme views, while MPs are more pragmatic um, about these things. And, and there's also an issue um, about competence that you might think. I mean, again, I, I I like bringing these down from the sort of the high level ideological stuff into the how is this actually going to function? One of the problems that Jeremy Corbyn had as leader of the Labour Party was lots of criticism that he wasn't good at managing the machine, 
that he wasn't he wasn't able to do things like timing announcements of the new transport policy so it wasn't getting competed with by other things he was doing in the news cycle so um he had a shadow transport minister resign just because they felt undermined on their big policy announcements day like it's it's those issues of whether you can actually manage manage that kind of complex organization that i think are are always part of the calculation for a prime minister because unlike say a us president where you're a figurehead you don't actually pass legislation you you know you select a cabinet from people who aren't elected in our system you're you're managing people that have the same electoral mandate you have you know so and so it's technically cabinet government and that that ability to hold the cabinet together i think is is always a bigger part of this calculation than a lot of our discussions of politics acknowledge Listen, let's leave that a little bit there. But uh, Graham, you ha- you raised a question you wanted to discuss quickly. So um, there's kind of, as I mentioned, that there's a kind of change, uh, very challenging background, and we've got to think about as a leader uh, how we're thinking through policies. So why don't you just introduce it for us? Yeah, I mean, it kind of relates to this thought that we've already had about stability. That in this case, it's a kind of stability over time, and not necessarily within a government, but um, across governments and uh, and across across time more broadly. So I was flicking through the newspapers. I came across an opinion piece by Caitlin Moran in the Times saying, insulate Britain were right. If we look back to when they were gluing themselves to the motorway, their plans to make our energy situation better by having lots of funding for insulating houses would have cost much less money than it looks like we're about to spend on subsidizing people's electricity bills through loans over the course of 10, 20 years. Joe Lysett was on Sunday with Laura Koonsberg um, and was very sarcastic in in a way that that got a lot of media attention, saying, uh, Liz said it would be wrong to predict the future, even though loads of people predicted and have predicted that we're going to have real issues with paying our energy bills. And there's this thought that lots of the situations we're in seem like ones that not only were foreseeable, but were foreseen quite loudly, and no action was taken. We've had the fifth education secretary in a year, um, and the National Association for Head Teachers have been um, decrying this instability. Um, since 2008, when Russia invaded Georgia, energy security in Europe has been an issue that has been discussed within Europe for a long time. And now we're noticing that there's this huge problem where if Russia cuts the gas off, the gas prices become unsustainable. Interest rates have been abnormally low since 2009. And in historical standards, they still are. But there are huge worries about people's ability to cope with their increase in terms of runaway inflation and the effects on people's mortgages. And that, like These are all things that I mean, and even the pandemic, you know, sort of <laughs> pandemics have been on the list of global catastrophes we need to prepare for, for at least the last decade. And um, we didn't have the public health infrastructure to deal with it. We had to in- invent it at great expense on the hoof. And there's this worry that this pattern is just repeating that we've we've been through, you know, the last three prime ministers haven't lasted a full term. Our institutions are not working in the respect of providing policies that are long-term enough 
to give us stability over time. So we end up in a situation where we spend a lot more money doing much less effective policies because we keep having to be very reactive to crises that were both foreseen and foreseeable. So it's a kind of worry that we're we're seeing at the moment um, going into winter, the results of, of this kind of structural problem that we've had for some time about getting long-term planning, making difficult decisions um, that the electorate won't like in the short term to avoid the kind of series of crises that we've seen since the financial crisis in, in 2008 and, and onwards. It seems that we lurch from crisis to crisis and don't have um, long-term planning for those things that we can see coming. But then again, I'm always mindful of the possibly apocryphal um, Harold Macmillan line when asked by a journalist what is most likely to set a government off course. He says, events, dear boy, events. Yeah, it's a fascinating introduction. and I've, I've often had similar thoughts myself. I mean, if you, I think one thing you can say is that if there's, if there's anything that's absolutely certain or nearly absolutely certain is that un, unpredictable things will keep on happening. So if you think back to the, the glorious year of 2000, which now seems quite an optimistic year, you know, nobody knew then there'd be 9-11, the financial crisis, Brexit, the global pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, to name just five things that nobody would have predicted. And yet, you know, it's, it was certainly, if somebody was thinking back in that year, are there going to be sudden, unpredictable and uh, cataclysmic events over the next 20 years? Well, of course, that, that, that's predictable. We just don't know quite what they are. So to some extent, we, we are, you know, hostages to what actually happens. But I think Graham's entirely right. And actually, there's, I mean, you mentioned, Graham, the, um, Kate Moran in the Times. There's another Sunday Times article, I thought rather good, by Matthew Side on exactly this question of long-termism versus short-termism, making the point largely you're making. If you take the pandemic, um, we realised just a little too late that we hadn't got uh, proper stocks of personal protective equipment and we hadn't properly planned for a pandemic because it wasn't going to happen tomorrow or it probably wasn't going to happen tomorrow any more than the end of the world is going to happen tomorrow. But there are, cer- so there are certain things as, you know, people in on um, out of the public eye, civil servants and scientists are always warning us that can be predicted as a reasonable probability over, say, the next 10 or 20 years or something, that we should plan for. The problem is that government planning, which is subject to re-election all the time, is a bit like the academic research excellence framework. You have to have something, you know, um, you can show for your work over the last five years, otherwise you're out of a job, probably, or you're not promoted, or you don't get a job, or something like that. So there's going to be a psychological impetus all the time towards the short term, Add to that, there's a question of coordination and cooperation. Different people will have different views about what's likely to happen and, moreover, what's most, what, what matters among the things that might happen. And unless you have a sort of genuinely benevolent and wise dictatorship, a sort of Plato's Republic sort of idea, we've got the second best thing, which is democracy, which is very unlikely to, to yield uh, the optimum outcome um, simply because there are competing interests, competing values. I mean, take the pandemic. Some people thought... I mean, obviously, part of the problem was predicting what would happen, you know, how many people would die after the pandemic. Another moral problem was the question of how you weigh up the value of people dying out of this particular disease versus the value of the things that we lost during lockdown, such as businesses, uh, dying relatives and, and all these things. So we've got clashes of values and of predictions. Well, in a way, I, I cynically think we need two government departments, one, the Department of Crisis Management, the other Department of Long-Term Planning, and they should meet every now and again and sort of try to work out 
a sort of expected utility, if you like, you know, try to bring the best insights of each. I, I think, I mean, the electorate needs to be trusted more, perhaps we hope we can trust them, to think in the long term. Uh, you know, if you read a lot of psychological literature, Derek Parfit talks a lot about this, the bias towards the near. You know, we're, we're much more concerned about the visit to the dentist tomorrow than we are with about the one in five years' time that's 10 times as painful. That's just the way we are. I don't think we're going to reason people out of it. So we are stuck with something. I don't know a solution, but there does need to be vigorous debate and transparency uh, about um, what, the, what the possibilities really are. So, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating question. Um, to pick up on one thing that it's in what Pierce is saying is the incentives are all wrong. Um, we've got a, a system that incentivizes, you know, in democracy, we've got a system that incentivizes short termism. I don't have so much faith that the general population um, is any better at uh, thinking or caring about the, the long term. And if anything, they might be worse. You've got situations um, in the States, I'm sure this is happening everywhere, where the climate is changing the world, changes need to be ha- need to happen. Um certain areas for instance coastal areas need to be surrendered to the sea but people don't want that to happen so um they just pretend as if it's not happening and coming back to something that graham said in relation to the 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 energy crisis and the climate crisis and how those two are related i mean that's really striking and it's interesting how that wasn't even (laughs) predicted by the environmental movement or maybe there maybe it was and i just didn't hear those those people pointing to this fact but you know perhaps what's so striking is that we could have by addressing one we could have avoided the other i mean just imagine a world in which we had not only insulated britain but also switched to renewable energy if we put a program in 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 the 90s paid out significant costs to do it but got it done and now we're in a situation are not dependent on on gas where putin doesn't have this massive power that he does over the rest of the world because of dependence on gas it'd be a whole different situation and we would have um had a way of dealing with the climate crisis but it's amazing to think just how there was this other incredibly powerful argument for a switch to renewables going back that wasn't in the forefront of people's minds, which is just that we were dependent on this substance, which uh, this incredibly um, immoral regime in Moscow had this control over uh, and we just allowed that to to continue. And, and indeed, before it was the incredibly immoral regime in Moscow, it was the incredibly immoral regime in Saudi Arabia. I mean, and and again, like, it's not that this stuff wasn't out there. My dad um, often tells me stories of the oil crisis in the 1970s, where you just had insufficient electricity supply, um, and you would have absurdities where one department in the, in the bank he worked for wouldn't be allowed to have the lights on on a day, but his department was an international department, so was allowed, but all the work that they were doing required the department with no electricity to provide it. So they were sitting there with the lights blazing, not being able to do any work. So, I mean, the experience of the 1970s was was a forewarning of the issues of energy security. And, and I think environmental activists have been pointing out that, that the regimes that we get oil and gas from are not always the most morally circumspect. So, I mean, I think that that has been an issue that, that 
they have raised. But largely, it's not been at the forefront of our minds because it's been considered such a, a fringe movement for the last 50 years. And yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to make a quick point about near bias that Piers mentioned, partially because it's an area that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, and indeed, there's been quite a lot of literature on. So near bias looks to be irrational until you start building in some features of time that make it make more sense. So if there's genuinely, genuine uncertainty about the future, you should you should build that into your calculations. So, so near bias is usually meant to be sort of ignoring that kind of uncertainty. But in practice, we don't know if we will still have any teeth in 10 years' time. So worrying more about our teeth next year versus in 10 years' time makes sense just because there's lots of uncertainty. Will we still even be alive? You know, There's also differences in what kind of things are valuable. So Elizabeth Harmon has a really nice example of a, a teenage mother who accepts that their life would have been better in every way that would have mattered. Um, had they waited before they'd had children, the, ch- the children would be better brought up. They would have had more financial security. Everybody would have been happier, except they wouldn't change that actual kid that they actually have for anybody. That that once things come into existence, perhaps you know, particular institutions or businesses or or so on, those things start to have a moral character that they don't have as mere potentials, um, and so one of the ways in which the continuation of things we have now versus merely making the distant future potentially better is that there's value in the things that we have now. And so once you start building in these these kind of other factors um, about the near, that it tends to be things that we actually have a, a moral relationship with um, and there's less uncertainty, it's not so obvious that, that near bias is just a thing that the... That the uninformed do, and indeed a lot of the psychological literature on this has a history of a certain kind of classism and racism that means we get to be callous towards the poor or ethnic minorities because they're just not being rational enough. And if only they were more rational, they wouldn't get into these messes. That that actually, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, it's not rational to discount the uncertainty. You know, just to plan on things that that are entirely uncertain. So, so I, I always want to be a little bit cautious about um, near bias, though I think our media do a lot of work in framing the issues we should be thinking about, and the media certainly sell more papers or more clicks or or whatever by having new issues constantly at the forefront of our mind rather than long-term issues developing slowly and people sort of seeing these these tendencies building. So actually, I think the media has an incentive to make us focus on, on short-term crises um, rather than it's that people in general are bad at this. Great. Thanks, Graham. Listen, um, let's leave um, that whole issue there. Fascinating, both about Parliament and about thinking. Um, and we'll see you all in the next part when we're thinking about a really big uh, short-term crisis and something that needs some long-term thinking. We think about climate change and reparations. And welcome back. 
The past week has seen widespread flooding in Pakistan. Um, there have been over a thousand deaths estimated, but also many millions of people displaced and whose lives have been turned upside down. The damage will be huge. There's estimates uh, that uh, one region's lost uh, so many crops that it will damage the food supply, uh, the whole of Pakistan uh, by about half. And I imagine uh, all of this damage is going to cost billions to rectify. Many experts agree that this is a direct result of climate change. We're also seeing other devastating effects around the world. Somalia is currently experiencing its worst drought in a generation, for example. Um, there's the immediate issue of helping countries and people in such situations. There's also the question of what some countries owe others. Earlier this week, Sherry Rahman who's Pakistan's climate change minister, said that richer countries who've polluted more owe reparations to other countries, often poorer and more at risk, such as her own. She claims that Pakistan has contributed only 1% to greenhouse gas emissions. So as well as richer, more polluting nations having a duty to stop polluting as much as they do, do they, uh, do we, in the UK, where all the three of us, four of us are based, do we have a duty to make reparations and if so, what form should it take? So does anyone want to say any more about this very important issue? Uh, Graham, why don't you go first? So one of the questions that springs out to me in this is, who are we calling we? So the the way that we identify who is responsible for something 200 years ago, who is responsible for the Industrial Revolution, it can be kind of tricky to work out how those responsibilities kind of get passed down through different institutions. So is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland responsible for everything that was done during the British Empire, even if done in Pakistan? So the questions about who we think the the reparations are between, I think, needs a little careful thought since Pakistan has only existed since 1947 that's you know, during the Industrial Revolution, the Republic of Ireland was part of the United, you know, what's now the Republic of Ireland was part of the United Kingdom. And of course, it was different governments and different different groups of people who were responsible for making the decisions. So this, this isn't, as it were, a sceptical claim, ah, I don't think there should be reparations, because there are difficult issues about how we work out how these responsibilities get passed on. I think it's very plausible that you know we, we can't just write off the past as, as not having an influence on today. Were we to do so, we ought to write off a lot of the loans that are still getting paid back by many developing countries. But we ought to think carefully about how this works, because in the case of companies having debts, when the companies go bankrupt, the debts disappear. If we're talking about nations, it's not clear that there's any equivalent to a, a nation ceasing, it just gets absorbed into a new state or split amongst multiple states or, or whatever. Great, thanks. Uh, Kieran? So I think the case for reparations is pretty overwhelming. Uh, there's an interesting you know, question as to what exactly is the basis for it and how we think about pollution historically. So in the climate change literature, there's um, a debate over, you know, what should be the relevant principle when it comes to this question of who should pay for the effects of, of climate change or who should pay for the costs of making the transition to renewable energy. Three principles get banded around. So one is the one that Pakistani minister was referring to, which is polluters should pay. And then you get into this interesting question, which um, Graham was raising about what to do about historical emissions. 
uh, that happened either before any of us were alive or happened before the time where we knew that climate change was occurring. So you've got this kind of innocent polluter problem whereby some of the pollution, it doesn't seem that you can attribute to anybody alive. And then you've, you know, you've got a question of, well, inheritance of, of harmful effects as well. It's worth noting that you know, if you look at a graph of the amount of carbon released, a lot of it has been released in recent years. So, you know, we can say, oh, well, Great Britain started the Industrial Revolution. That happened a long time ago. And sure, a lot of carbon has been released far more recently than that. And a lot of it has been released in the, you know, since the 70s and 80s when the climate science was was becoming clearer and clearer. And yet richer nations that are the major polluters in the world just fail to act. So I think even if you just take this polluter pays principle, I think the, the case for reparations, just, just paying the costs on polluters, whether it's reparations for, for the effects of climate change or for the costs of, of making of, of adaptation, should be put on richer nations that on this grounds, on the polluter pays principle. There's an interesting question. What should we say about, you know, the the tranche of pollution that, that you can't blame current generations for? And there in the literature, there's this other interesting principle, which is the beneficiary pays principle. So you might say, well, okay, British people today aren't um, responsible, you know, they, they didn't decide to start the Industrial Revolution. They're not responsible for all the carbon that was released uh, before their birth, but they've benefited from it. And then there's a really interesting literature over, you know, some people have qualms about that. They say, well, wait a second, if you innocently, uh, you know, you didn't, you weren't responsible for something, you, you just benefited um, as a side effect, uh, then why should the cost be put on you? Other people are really warm to this principle and think that it has value. And then the third principle that people talk about is um, just ability to pay. You know, some countries are a lot richer than others. Britain's a lot more richer than Pakistan. And so on that basis alone, now you might not call that reparations, but um, on that basis alone, there seems to be grounds for help to be sent to Pakistan. So I don't I don't really see people banned about different arguments. Um, I think just on the polluter pays principle there's a really strong grounds for a lot of money uh tr- transferring if you just think to, to, to kind of underscore that principle if i if i just leave my bath tap running and i can see that it's running full speed and the water overflows and causes a flood down in the flat beneath me then clearly morally and legally um i've got a duty to pay for the cost and so I think the, th- the same thing just transfers. I think countries which are responsible for the pollution have got a duty to pay for the cost. Uh, thanks. Uh, Piers? Yes, it's a very difficult question, and, I, I, and I'm not really sure what to say about it. I mean, there are, there are questions of principle and questions of practical enactments of any reparations that might be uh, required. I mean, just incidentally, the Radio 4's more or less program discussed this yesterday and said it was not not anything like a third of the Pakistan that had been flooded, but that's just by the by. I mean, we can we can still discuss the the the, 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 the principle. They, they said a tenth. A tenth, the they said, well, it's okay. A maybe tenth, a, a tenth of the country, country the side of Pakistan. Has been yeah, flooded. so okay, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's just it's just an aside. Um, I agree with Graham's first question. Who's we? That's a very important question to ask. 
I was also um, was going to say what uh, Kieran just said about uh, beneficiaries, because I thought the the most plausible argument for reparations would be not to do with attributing responsibility for these past wrongs or acts of folly, but identifying those who benefit from those uh, wrongdoings and those who um, suffer from it. Uh, in the in the early literature, I remember teaching this many years ago about reparations in general. I mean, there's a an argument put forward to say, well, okay, um, the individuals in a disadvantaged nation, a disadvantage, say, by floods caused by the Industrial Revolution, would not themselves have existed had it not been for, uh, for, for those particular wrongs. So, and then we get these Parfitian sort of arguments, which always drop me as a bit of a distraction about, you know, can you, can you be said to be having an unfortunate life now, given that the alternative for you would be not to exist? I, I, I think that there's got to be some sort of answer to that, but I think it's going to be a, a very long and complicated one. I think that what is being appealed to here is the idea of strict liability rather than responsibility, uh, more responsibility. So uh, if I inadvertently crash a car into a parked car and I made no mistake, it was just in some sense a genuine accident, whatever might be meant by that, I'm still held liable for it. Then we have a question of how how rigorously and comprehensively we extend the principle. So if we say, okay, rich nations are responsible for reparation for that, well, what else do we have to take into account? Might there be ways in which rich nations are themselves owed reparations from other rich nations for various things? Um, how how are we to balance the responsibility of rich nations uh, to do this, given the enormous problems that they already face with their own domestic problems? I mean, take Britain, which is maybe not a major offender here, but you know, we we've got the the climate problem, we've got social care, we've got the cost of living, with all these things, and now suddenly, 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 oh, by the way, we should be paying money to. Um, to countries where there have been floods because of our past industrial revolution. I mean, there's no limit to how the list can expand. Now, there may be some answer to this, uh, some principled answer, but those are the questions that come to my mind. So I'm, I'm rather disturbed and uncertain about the whole thing, I'll admit. Yeah, so this is super interesting because I think there might be a disagreement. So because I, I don't find this is a, a, a very difficult problem. Uh, you said that you, you thought that the beneficiary pays principle was the strongest principle um, and that you didn't think it was about moral responsibility. But so I was wondering why. I mean, just think about, you know, I've got a graph up here, carbon released by the UK over time. There's not much, despite, you know, all the amazing years of the early industrial revolution, that's not when the carbon, where's the carbon was released. And a lot of it has been released since the 1970s. And then a lot of it has been released in the last few years, when lots of us are still alive, long after we've known about the effects of climate change, and yet we have these elections, the government that wins doesn't do what it should to reduce carbon emissions. So for me, this is actually a case where it does seem like there's a strong argument to be made that certain people to blame and uh, that they owe compensation to the victims of climate change. So it's more than strict so, liability; it's actual responsibility. Yeah, they're... I would. I, I don't think you have to just uh, um, depend on strict liability arguments. I think you can make the, the mm, moral okay. responsibility argument in this case. Uh, thanks, Graham. So, so I take the point. If we're worried about who the historical we is, you know, are how do we? transmit responsibility down from the industrial revolution you think look let's just put that to one side since 1970 we we've got persistence of the state you know of you know the uk is 
the same country as it was in 1970 in, in relevant respects. We're not going through kind of constitutional changes. Maybe the Czech Republic is, you know, former Soviet countries are going to have difficulties about how they divide some of this up. But but in the UK's case, it's going to be fairly straightforward. But in this case, I, I start to wonder why it is that we think the the relata here, the things related by the reparation relation, are nations rather than entities of a different size. So if we're talking since 1970, in many cases, the same corporations still exist and can be held morally responsible for the actions that they carried out. The same individual, if it was a government that did something, that the relevant state can be held responsible for government policies passed by, you know. So when we were setting up earlier, it sounded like we were talking about nations owing other nations. Um, And nations are kind of not particularly organized social units. They're, you know, they're people joined together by culture and language and geography in some cases. And um, but if we're talking about particular institutions um, or particular individuals, you know, so suddenly I, I, I get a retrospective tax on all my energy bills that I also get a government loan out to pay since we're getting government loans to pay for my future energy bills, we might as well get government loans to pay for my past energy bills. Um, And we sort of, we actually assign it to people who have, you know, who have fairly direct responsibility. If we're doing the post-1970 argument, I wonder why the relata are these big kind of amorphous things, nations, rather than something more specific with more direct responsibility. Um, yeah, so so I completely agree with that. So I, I think it, it comes down to individuals. Um, I, I take an individualist approach to morality. So I think ideally we'd find the individuals who are responsible and then uh, they would pay to the degree to which they are responsible. So presumably if you were head of an oil company then you're or a, or a politician, you're in some ways more responsible for the climate change than an ordinary voter. But I also think ordinary voters... Are responsible. So I think responsibility is quite widely shared. And then there's the practical question, which is, but, you know, I agree, it gets, it, it gets complicated at a theoretical level. And then there's a the practical question, well, what we, who's going to pay in the end? And um, how are we going to find all these people who are responsible and, and um, tax them to the, to the exact degree to which they should be taxed? That's going to be really difficult. It's interesting. People do raise all these issues about, you know, is the UK the same country as it was in the past? Or why should it be the whole country paying? Why shouldn't it be individuals when it comes to costs? And then, you know, I'm not saying this is true of you, Graham, but I'm saying it's true of a, a wider public debate is when it comes to things about national pride or territorial ownership or who should own what or whatever all those things people suddenly are status and so, so well, it's this country that was responsible for x x y and z and so, so we I'm should reap the be, benefits i'm happy to be statist all the way down like i'm um, and i'm happy for equity on these things and i, I think i I mean, I want to acknowledge that you're right, that a lot of the debate does seem to have this inconsistency, which is why earlier in my comments, I adverted to the fact that we're getting loans that were taken out, you know, against the, co- the country long before 1970, you know, that there are, you know, we've only just paid off the Second World War under the Marshall Plan, you know, in the last 10 years to the US. So, so we do clearly acknowledge that there is persistence in these financial ways for some purposes. 
so it's so the question of persistence isn't a but how is it even possible that there could be persistence of states but uh actually it looks like some answer to this question is going to be quite important to the detail of how practically this works and and as uh, a metaphysician i'm just really interested in how those questions work and i and i want to think through them rather than a you know but, but the, the kind of Kantian angst of how how could we even conceive of persistence through time? I, I think social entities clearly persist, given that there are financial debts that that go beyond anybody alive. And um, so we, you know, the, the system clearly presupposes that. But we also need an account of how exactly that's working. Um, and, and it gets really tricky if we're talking over a thousand years, not that tricky if we're talking mm. over 50 years. Yes, I mean, I, I want to raise the general question, which is quite interesting, of when does de facto liability or responsibility lapse? So when you think about the legitimacy of states, uh, it's the case that most states began by usurping another state and starting wars. That might have been 100 years ago. Now we don't think, ah, oh, no, it must be dismantled because that's how it began. It's at some particular point when we say, when it's reasonable to say that, or does it just, do we just say, well, you know, everybody now accepts that this state exists and, and, and um, you know, the past is the past. And I don't think there's any philosophical answer to it. I think we just philosophically accept that this is what happens, that we, uh, you know, certain, but just the passage of time uh, lessens liabilities and responsibilities and, and has implications for legitimacy. But I, I, I doubt we could be much more precise than that. It's, a, it's just a more general question. It's tangential to the original one, just one that occurred to me. Yes, and I've got some some other questions buzzing around my head of this. Uh, so here's here's two. So earlier on, uh, Kieran, I mean, when you were making the, the other points, you just said you know towards the end, we just give them a, a bunch of money and and that's it. I'm just wondering whether that is what reparations are, um, or whether we can because you know let's imagine it's nation states, right? So they're they're UK PLC pays a huge amount of money, billions upon billions across you know five five years to. Pakistan, presumably to the to the nation of Pakistan, to the government of Pakistan on behalf of the people. Is that all we do? Or do we are we allowed to have certain strings attached, which says and a certain proportion has to be spent on these people in this region, i.e. particularly poor people who are vulnerable uh, for flood defences, right? Or do we trust the government of, of Pakistan to do the right thing by their people? I mean, I think there's an interesting question there. And then secondly, I mean, who decides on the on the what the value what the amount of the reparations are? I mean, do we trust some supranational body to 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 do this, or do we just rely on very complex negotiations between countries um, just agreeing between themselves? I think that's an interesting issue as well. I don't know if what what anyone's got any quick ideas about those two things and as well so go on Kieran yeah so so again I think I think we need to separate the kind of practical questions from the moral questions so morally speaking I'm an individualist when it comes to the perpetrators and an individualist when it comes to the victims so we should find the people who who are suffering and they should be the people that are compensated I think we've got good reason to worry about um governments like Pakistan which um has got all kinds of problems, uh, like lots of governments around the world, and worrying about money and resources making it through to the people who, who need it the most or deserve it the most. So, yeah, so again, morally speaking, I think we should do this on an individual basis. I don't think, and I also think that it's possible to 
figure out i mean economists do this all the time trying to figure come up with figures for the cost of climate change um, and there's various debates in that literature but people do come up with figures so i don't think that's so difficult but then there's the practical question which is how how are you in a, in a world in which states run the world um how are you going to make these decisions and generally it's going to come down to um states giving resources to other states governments are going to inevitably be involved and um how much resources are transferred comes down to government negotiations in the real world um perhaps it shouldn't work that way but that is how it works yeah yeah i i i think i agree with that it's it's very confusing I and mean, i still um, come back to the point about uh, how, how thorough are we going to be if you forget the idea that uh uh, we, we should um, we're responsible for reparations because of things that uh, not just our ancestors did, but things that people sufficiently close to us did. Then, do we have a non-arbitrary way of factoring in uh, a sort of ranking of um, all the, the, the things we might be responsible for? Uh, what's most important? What's number two? What's number three? And who else? Who shares responsibility with us? I think questions of assigning responsibility are fairly are, are tremendously difficult but um, beyond that i haven't really worked it out great okay well let's leave things uh there thanks all three of you and uh, we'll see you in the next segment when we'll be thinking about our consciences and welcome back let's return to uk politics the new uk health secretary is to raise coffee She's a practising and devout Catholic who's expressed views in the past about abortion. Uh, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service has raised some concerns about this as Coffee comes into her new role. Whilst referencing abortion in this intro, we're not going to discuss the detail of it. Uh, in case you're interested, we did discuss the recent reversal of Roe versus Wade in the US in a previous episode. Uh, I believe it was episode 10 of series one. Our focus uh, in this segment is going to be different. Um, I think the example of, of coffee uh, and some other examples as well raise a more general issue of how political issues and policies connect and clash with what are often termed issues of moral conscience in politics. Um, Piers, do you want to say a little bit more about this for us, please? Yes, you've given the basics in your introduction. I noticed uh, looking at the BBC yesterday that uh, Therese Coffey uh, is a, a practicing Catholic and uh, the sort of practicing Catholic I think he's prepared to try to enact her views as far as possible on abortion. Not all Catholics, um, Joe Biden I think is a possible case, are prepared to do that, but she it looks as though she is. Now, um, questions like abortion and euthanasia have always been matters of conscience when it comes to votes in Parliament. It, um, it, there's a free vote, there's no party whip, there's no party line. It's not just because people can be have different views within the parties, but I think more fundamentally because certain issues are seen in some vague sense to be defined as issues of conscience, uh, as if other political issues weren't. But then, you know, we, we can perhaps discuss that distinction uh, as well. Uh, that strikes me as, as, as broadly right. And I really want to sort of um, kick off a discussion about what we mean by conscience, whether it has any particular authority, whether it's owed any particular respect I mean, quite regardless, regardless of what Therese Coffey might do in her role. And by the way, she's not going to try to reverse the laws, I think because she knows she can't. Uh, but, but she might be as obstructive as she can be when it comes to policy formation or funding uh, and this sort of thing. So that might be something for people who disagree with her on this question to worry about. But on conscience, um, perhaps I can be really old fashioned and 
recall or uh, inform you of uh, two pertinent questions asked by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century about conscience. Question one, does an erring conscience bind? And question two, does an erring conscience excuse? Now, his answer is, um, oddly, perhaps, yes, an erring conscience does bind, meaning that it's always wrong to do something that you consider to be wrong, whether or not you're right in thinking that thing to be wrong. So I suppose a, a contemporary example might be, supposing I'm an ethical vegetarian, I think it's wrong to eat meat uh, of animals that have been killed for the purpose of eating them, but I succumb to temptation and I eat a ribeye steak. Do I do something wrong? Aquinas think would say yes, even though he wouldn't believe it was wrong to eat the steak, because I'm showing a preparedness to do something that's morally wrong. On the other hand, um, does an erring conscience excuse? Um, have I done the right thing just because I thought he was right? Well, obviously not. This is where you get the appearance of paradox. Uh, I mean, the, there's a famous rather sort of disturbing case of, of uh, Heinrich Himmler, the head of the Nazi SS, saying that, uh, you know, he, he believed that we must suppress our natural humanity to develop Nazi virtues. So he was following his conscience. But his conscience, Aquinas would say, would clearly be in need of re-education. You're not off the hook morally just because you do what you think is right. Uh, and I think that's the, the solution Aquinas would come up with. Um, you're in a moral pickle if you're someone like Himmler. The only solution is to re-educate your conscience. But that's really a sort of way into this question of the authority of conscience, because it, it reminds us, first of all, that there is something, I think, we can discuss it, morally wrong about doing something you think is, is itself wrong, whether or not you're correct or not in your moral belief. And also that you're not, you're not just off the hook because, because you do something wrong that you think is, is right. Now, when it comes to voting in Parliament, I think the, there's a sort of lip service being given to something like Aquinas of thought in the idea that, you know, people must not be forced to, to do something they would consider wrong, say, by being forced to vote against an issue of conscience, to vote for, uh, vote for euthanasia or something when you, you think it's wrong and you'd be collaborating in some sense with that wrong in voting for it similar with the variety of other, of other issues. So um, one question I think is, is should there be these um, exception clauses uh, when it comes to free votes? Um, there's a possible analogy here with uh, an issue in medical ethics that's been um, much discussed by uh, writers like the, um, the Oxford utilitarian philosopher, I think it's utilitarian, uh, Julian Savalesco, who has argued when in a medical context that um, Doctors and nurses should no longer be allowed to exempt themselves on grounds of conscience from participation in abortion. And he probably thinks that applies to other things too. Why? Because it compromises patient care. A patient has a right to expect the services from a doctor or nurse that are now regarded as part of the job. If somebody seeking an abortion goes to a GP and says, I, I would like um, a referral for an abortion, and the GP says, sorry, I don't do that it's against my conscience. Well, that's all very well. You could say it's even self-indulgent for the GP, but where does that leave the patient? Uh, Savalescu argues that, uh, you know, if you, you, you have that sort of moral view and you want to enter general practice, you ought to think very carefully about whether you're in the right job, uh, because there's no right to do a job uh, if you're, you know, not prepared to do what the job requires. Of course, the deep question here, one deep question is, what should the job require? Uh, are there not various... Uh, side benefits from allowing doctors to act conscientiously. And I suppose analogously, we could, we could try to pursue the analogy anyway. Um, somebody might say, look, um, things like abortion and euthanasia and assisted dying should no longer be free votes. 
for the same reason, or something analogous to the reasons that people think that doctors and nurses should not be allowed to refuse to participate in abortions. Remembering, of course, that they're not being forced to participate. They're just not being allowed to do jobs that require uh, that sort of thing. There's a tangle of issues, I think. I mean, I, I've only painted a very broad impressionistic picture of it. But I think the authority of conscience uh, and to what extent others should respect your conscience is a fascinating topic that knows of no easy resolution in general. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Piers. Uh, Kieran, Graham, any thoughts? Kieran, why don't we go with you first and then we'll go on to Graham. Yeah, so it's a fascinating question. I mean, we've had this... Um you know, tradition in Parliament that you get these free votes on particular issues and then these other issues, you're whipped. So you have to do what the party says. And it's a very strange system. I mean, it's a strange system that we have whipping. What, what, why do we have that? And then it's it's made even stranger by having these free votes on particular on particular issues, which are called issues of conscience. And then you think, you know, well, what's the difference? So it's not, it can't be that, these are the only issues which are are really important. They're not the only issues which are matters of life and death. The government is making decisions all the time which have an effect on who lives and who dies. So it's not the only issues which are moral issues. Every piece of government legislation that's put before Parliament is has all kinds of moral issues and questions. And so people, you know, can... On all the issues in which people are whipped, they can feel that they've been they're violating their conscience by voting against their own views, and MPs do that all the time um, under pressure from their parties. So, what makes it different in these particular cases? And I, so, I, I kind of struggle to see the justification there. Uh, my own, my only possible thought is that there might be a justification grounded on diversity when it comes to religion so it might be that you know we just the catholic church has changed a lot over the years and we're now in a situation where you know look at a country like ireland in which um lots of catholics are just not taking the 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 official view but if you went back in time when the catholic church was perhaps more disciplined um to the extent that ordinary Catholics, you know, followed followed the leadership, then it might have been there, there could have been a, an argument for just having free votes on certain issues, just so that to, to allow people from certain religious minorities to, to to vote a certain way, so that you can you know keep them in Parliament or keep them as part of the government or whatever. So I can see possibly an argument there, but otherwise, I just I, I can't I just don't understand understand the system and then what what's going on currently with this health minister i mean that's all quite strange as well so she's if i understand it correctly she's kind of using the fact that it's this free vote this personal conscience issue to argue that it has got therefore got nothing to do with her role as health minister but again that that seems odd to me i don't see why we shouldn't peer into what she's voted for in the past to judge her her ju- judge her as to why she, whether she would be a good or bad health minister currently yeah thanks just to add um so in the last uh, few hours i think building up to the recording certainly yesterday when this question was put to a therese coffee said she was a fundamentally a democrat and wasn't seeking to to, to change anything about current legislation graham why don't you come in and i've got a few thoughts as well 
I mean, so so that last thought I think is quite useful here is that it's important to distinguish here between members of parliament and members of government, even though all the you know most of the members of the government are in parliament. Um, so there's a question about whether votes for legislation should should be votes of conscience or free votes. I think Kieran's explanation of being forced to fire someone from the government for voting a particular way on a certain divisive issue is is very difficult if you want to have a government and you need to discuss issues that you know to be divisive. So you have a convention that some issues are kind of uh, are separated off. Like that pragmatically makes sense to me. But there's an interesting issue about someone being the health secretary who is managerially responsible for the operation of um, a a Department of State. And even if they're not planning to change the law and they're not planning to make strategic policy decisions about the direction in which things go, just a question of how one prioritizes things. So which emails do they sit on for three days because they just can't bring themselves to answer them? What kind of delays happen as a result of someone feeling uneasy. Just to take it away from a sort of rather heated issue, um, I'll tell an anecdote that a department I used to work in, I established a previous head of department had removed any reference to metaphysics from the description of the department's activities um, because they didn't feel there was any philosophical area called metaphysics. Um, And so they couldn't bring themselves to be the head of a department in which (laughs) metaphysics was purported to be done. And then when I was head of that department, I reinserted um, all. Was the that an issue of conscience? I think it was. Um, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think it was an in- issue of intellectual integrity for us both. In fact, you know, because but it was. It, it seems like quite a strange thing. But then, if you are managerially responsible, not just for some domain of activity, but also for a group of people working under you, the questions about how your personal beliefs interact with that. Again, I, I kind of want to say much meatier because it's not just a question of do you refuse or not refuse. We're not dealing in the kind of do you do or not do. There's a lot more. How do you do? How how much do you uh, allow someone working under you with different views to yours the ability to express their views in what they do, or or how much do you micromanage them? Lots of questions about what kind of a manager you are come in, rather than the very binary, do you vote in favor or against that you get with legislators? So so one of the things I think is really interesting with um, ministers and also in the US context, Supreme Court justices, where they go to a lot of questions about what their personal views are, precisely because they're interested to know how they're going to, to fulfill the role rather than merely what things that they will vote in favor of and what things they will vote against. So 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 I think the kind of the meatiness of being a manager, being being managerial respon- managerially responsible is kind of really interesting and underrated as a philosophical topic. And I suppose, I mean, I want to ask Simon your opinion on this, because I know that you've had quite a lot of experience um, and are now president of the British Philosophical Association. You've got a lot of experience of being in a position where you have your, your own beliefs, but are also responsible for, for a, an area of activity with, with lots of other people in it. Uh, sure. Goodness. Uh, oh, I, you, you stopped there. Now I've got to answer it. Um, yeah. I mean, certainly when I was 
uh, as some people know, I was dean of faculty for for best part of nine years at Kent. And there are all sorts of pragmatic, um, Scylla and Charybdis uh, decisions I used to have to make kind of every day when I used to have to put my personal thoughts aside and represent or advocate for particular things because I was acting on behalf of a, of a group of people in that role. I'm not going to say, you know, some examples immediately pop to mind, but I won't say what they are in this in this public broadcast. I mean, I, th- I think there's a, so one, one another example I was going to bring in alongside this, these the examples we've already voiced, which I think gets at some of the issues here, goes back to something we were talking about in the in the first segment. So thinking about whether you're foreign secretary or indeed prime minister, um, there's all sorts of business one has to do with other countries and states that one might feel uh, are not the best on certain things. So we, we were talking about you know Middle Eastern states and human rights issues. I mean, I noticed that you know during the summer when uh, people were getting very worried about uh, you know uh, Russian oil and gas, then Joe Biden, Boris Johnson were were jetting off to the to the Middle East to try to talk to various uh, governments there. And people were criticising them for doing that. And, uh, I mean, as people will know uh, who've listened to this podcast, I'm not Boris Johnson's biggest fan. I had some sympathy for him for him going over because, I mean, what's he supposed to do? Say, well, we're not going to worry about oil and gas and everyone's going to freeze in the, in the winter. I mean, at that, at that stage, even if you've got some quite serious qualms about what that state has been doing, I think you need to negotiate with them about, about oil and gas. I had some some sympathy with both Johnson and Biden and other people in that in that situation. I think that there's so there's an interesting uh, that's that's slightly different from what we were talking about, which is I think, you know, you're responsible for kind of a whole government department or something which has kind of the business of, you know, medical care or or whatever it might be, and you put your thoughts aside in your conscience but it's kind of in the same sort of area i'm trying i'm trying hard to articulate what the difference is but i don't think it's coming straight to mind here but there's something around kind of taking one for the team i suppose and just doing your duty because you're in a particular sort of role which is where where i started with the with the dean thought graham right so you know you just have to get on with it and you have to put some of your your own particular moral or other views aside because you've decide you've made a decision to go for this particular role. I mean, yeah, actually, so going back to Therese Coffey, I mean, obviously she's she's health secretary and indeed deputy prime minister. It, it's well known that she's uh, good political friends with with Liz Truss and wants to take on a, a larger uh, role in in government. Um, but if she was really committed to particular views, then she might want to say, "Sorry, I, whatever I do, I can't do." Uh, Secretary of State for Health because of uh, particular views. I mean, if, if there was a particular, and similarly, you'd say, "Oh, sorry, I can't be Foreign Secretary because I don't want to jet around the world and talk to dictatorships that we have trade deals with." I mean, you could say that. Um, so that was a bit of a rambling answer, Graham. Well, uh, so the the first thing that you said, Simon, and, and the thing that Graham was getting at, I think it's just fascinating. So, which is this question of of kind of role morality? Like people assume certain roles, they might disagree with what they're being asked to do but they have assumed that role and i mean you just your your small case about about being head of a department and the fact that even in that particular example every day you're needing to make decisions for the sake of the department which might not be exactly what you would have chosen had you had a 
quote unquote free choice on the matter. And so then in in a way it makes me it makes me sympathetic when I think about that towards someone in um Coffee's position. There was an a similar case many years back on a different issue with I think it was a a Welsh agricultural minister so labor and and she was a vegetarian so there was massive pushback from the farmers of course most farmers are are, are tories so that that was a particular there was a dimension of that but anyway they said um, uh, i don't see why we we shouldn't believe them that that they objected to her appointment because she was a vegetarian so they couldn't they couldn't believe that she would be working in their interest and she said look those are my personal views and they're distinct from from my job my job is to represent Welsh agriculture that includes a lot of um that includes the meat industry so and I kind of I've kind of split on this I think maybe it's just a tragic problem because you know as as your own example reveals it's true that people do on a day-to-day basis fulfill roles and they can to some extent put their own views aside and that's just a part of how the world carries on functioning as it does. And so it seems a bit unfair to say to a minister who's a vegetarian or against abortion or whatever, you're you're incapable of doing that when there's so many examples of people doing that all the time. At the same time, the tragic part of it is how do we trust them? <laughs> so, especially when it comes to Graham's kind of issues of, you know, which emails are you sitting on? Or, or, all these all these parts of people's jobs that we can't look into. Uh, we can't see what they're prioritizing or deprioritizing. And and so we're inevitably suspicious. Are you if your personal views are so uh, are so contra to the role that you've taken up, how can we trust that you're going to put your personal views aside and fight for the cause that we the group believe in yeah i mean can i, I mean can i spell out a, a likely reply of therese coffee she'll say okay i'm a dissident on this particular issue i'm trying to make a difference i'm a democratic elected mp incidentally she probably wouldn't say it's because she's a catholic she'd probably say that yes i am a catholic but catholics have a moral position that can be defended by reason so we can leave religion out mm-hmm. of it. that's just a kind of bracketed point really it's a moral view it's a moral view which strikes me it's not one i agree with but it strikes me it's one that disturbs me it's not obviously absurd that abortion is a serious moral wrong for reasons that are fairly familiar cutting off an innocent life and so on and therefore, she would say there should be a, a voice in a democratic system for somebody with this minority view. Now, would it be possible for somebody with that moral view to recognize a distinction between the role, as it were, and the, the person in the role? She would, of course, say, well, uh, the two things are inseparable, and I'm trying to reshape the role. But then we have the question of, I suppose, the um, the, the point Simon was making about this intuition we have that there are certain decisions that we can take collectively when individuals on, say, the, the collective don't agree with the results. So a trivial example that comes to my mind, I never had an elevated post such as Simon's as Dean, but, uh, you know, I'm at an exam board. I disagree with a co-marker about whether a candidate should get a, a 55 or a 62. I think it should be 62. My colleague thinks 55. She has just as much of a right as I do to decide the, the final grade. So we're going on, we're going along with the process. So I sign the paper that says, okay, she gets, she gets 55 or, or whatever it is. That strikes me as intuitively, I don't like the word intuition, but start with it, uh, perfectly acceptable in a way that 
were I to be somebody who thought abortion was murder, I would not think it okay to be complicit in that way with um, a, a process that leads to the promotion of what I consider to be murder. Now, um, can we find some principled way of distinguishing these cases? I think that's a genuinely interesting question. Uh, I, I do think there's obviously, for reasons I think that, that Kieran hinted at, there's, there's, there has to be room for pluralism and dissidence in any uh, collective, including the medical profession. Um, you know, the idea that no doctors should be allowed to practice as, as just say, GPs or uh, obs and gynae doctors unless they took a pro-choice position strikes me as just on, just on in, simply taken in isolation somewhat sinister, uh, somewhat uh, repressive, if you like. Now, I'm aware of the counter-arguments about patient care, but these are two things to be weighed up in a way I'm not entirely sure how they should be weighed up. So I'm really just throwing questions out here because they um, um, I'd be very interested to know what people think. I think there is a, an interesting distinction that could be made as to two kinds of arguments for why you might allow people to go with their conscience on a particular issue. So one might be that you think that you're worried about their conscience. So you think that people just are entitled to follow their conscience rather than enact what you think they should or has been democratically decided or whatever it is and a, a very different issue a, a very different kind of argument is is about diversity or uh, morale or it's other kinds of values and i think it's i think it is helpful to distinguish those two issues so you might think you know in the doctor's case it might be that you've just got lots of really good doctors who take the stand that they do, that they're pro-lifers, and you don't want to get rid of those doctors, or you don't want those particular people in the profession. Or you think about the, you know, the vegetarian um, agricultural minister case. I mean, presumably vegetarians are really good people to have, or an argument could be made that they're really good people to, to have as agricultural ministers because they're going to care. Uh, more than the average person about animal rights and therefore when it comes to things like humane killing and how we treat animals that they're going to be the people that are going to push for those things perhaps more than the average meat eater and so to exclude them you know we might prevent people uh, um, from from serving in that role who would it's not that they would necessarily push vegetarianism on everyone but they might achieve certain values that are far more broadly shared i mean a similar issue crops up in um jury selection um and perhaps you know there's, there's an extension of these kinds of same kinds of issues into that domain as well where you know in the u.s on on murder cases often uh jurors will be excluded by the prosecution on the basis that they're against the death penalty and again that's that's not just, you know, even if you were in favor of the death penalty, you might be troubled by the fact that people who are against the death penalty are being excluded because they might be a particular demographic and they might be a good good group of people to have hmm. on a jury. Just on this topic, it's I mean worth noting that there is, in the case of Catholicism, a particular history in this country of them as a demographic being disenfranchised. You know, that it's a relatively recent thing that they were able to hold office. I always get a bit nervous about the, but how could this Catholic possibly hold the position of Secretary of State? Oh, because it, we were worried about these particular policies. Like, it's it's not so long ago that the, the idea that someone who followed the whip of the Pope could not be a 
minister of state because how could they be appropriately patriotic? So not only are there issues of diversity, but some of them have a kind of history that we ought to be aware of. I mean, going back to the, the general issue of moral conscience, I'm just thinking about, you know, flipping it, right? Because we want our politicians, just to stick with that with that example, to have a moral conscience, right? And to have views. <laughs> and to, I mean, to express those views, not only in cabinets and behind closed doors and debates, but sometimes to, to, to act on those views. We don't want people who are just, I mean, in a very pejorative sense, highly pragmatic, such that they've got no principles and no views at all. And they're just going to go with, whatever is politically expedient or, or otherwise. I suppose really then, we kind of are we looking for people with a certain character who can achieve the right sort of balance in the moment of sticking up for what they believe in, but also making sure that doesn't get in the way appropriately with doing their job? I mean, is that really what we're after? Um, I hear that in some parts of Europe, uh, Liz Truss's nickname has become the Iron Weathercock because of her ability to change depending on which way the wind is blowing. So uh-huh. so this is a concern that has been voiced recently about, um, indeed, I saw an a article in the New Statesman not too long ago sort of saying that one of the problems that we find in politics is um, a lack of ideology, um, that, that everybody is just saying what seems to be the right thing to say at the time and not being driven by any sort of larger moral concerns. I'm not sure to the extent to which that's true or or just a, a sort of reading into the situation. But yeah, we definitely want some kind of balance, right, between actually getting things done. Like if everybody stands on points of principle, that's a recipe for the kind of paralysis that Piers was talking about earlier, where, you know, no, 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 I can't possibly, um, you know, do anything on this issue. Like if if you like Confucius you might think that the orientation at which you lay your mats to prey on is a moral issue. You know, that that um, whether there are dirty dishes in the sink is something, look, until we've cl- cleaned the, the draining board of dirty dishes, I cannot be expected to work under these conditions. Um, you know, that would be, that would make it difficult to live together, you know. So, so political compromise is required for any democratic country just because you've got a bunch of people with moral views that that have to work together. However, democracies don't work either if there are, are no moral views. There needs to be some sort of negotiation into shared directions of travel in order for that to work. And I think that the two extremes there of being purely pragmatic, but having no principles whatsoever, and being ideologically driven, but totally uncompromising, make it difficult for a, a, an organization that just needs multiple people inputting into it, that the prime minister can't do everything. They, they need a cabinet. They need a government to form policy on their behalf to carry out actions. Um, and if everybody finds points of principle everywhere it's possible to find them, that's a recipe for paralysis. And indeed, exactly why places like Belgium went without a government for many months is because there was no ability to compromise amongst the people able to form a government. Yeah, I mean, it might help a bit to distinguish the uh, compromise with the less than perfect uh, and compromise with what you regard as absolutely forbidden. So now we have the question of what things are absolutely forbidden and what counts as complicity. Uh, I mean, yes, 
uh, starting a departmental meeting before the dishes in the departmental sink have been washed uh, might be less than ideal. But I think to resign because you uh, will not attend this meeting if you are compelled to uh, tolerate dirty dishes, that would seem eccentric. But, you know, but also I think it's worth saying pragmatic in my book simply means what works. And so a pragmatic solution, I think, is one that works. It may not be, it may be morally less than ideal. The issue is whether it's morally forbidden or, or even morally discourageable without being forbidden. This is perhaps where the line we need to think. And that's, of course, in moral theory, very, very difficult to know what, what kinds of actions are absolutely forbidden as opposed to usually forbidden. Well, you know, on this on this turn towards pragmatism, <laughs> a bunch of us on this panel seem to be doing it. I mean, you could extend it further, thinking even when it comes to these questions of conscience, you know, there's a question of whether you should respect people's conscience for any kind of deep reason to do with conscience. And there's there's another question, which is just, do you want to traumatize people? So even if you thought thought that there was no kind of, that people didn't, deserve to have a special exemption on certain issues because they have a right to follow their conscience you might just worry about forcing people to do certain things which they which they find abhorrent and the effects on them personally one puzzle i've got for myself is when it comes to mps voting and giving them free choices i'm not very sympathetic I, or at least I think we should be, I don't have a problem with the system where everyone gets a free choice all the time and we just get rid of whipping. I think whipping is quite strange. But having these certain exceptions where we have these free choices on conscience matters, I find puzzling. And yet at the same time, when it comes to something like military service, I'm far more, you know, even if we've got a just war, even if we imagine that that forcing people to fight uh, could be right i think that's really hard to justify but imagine a case in which it is and then you've got quakers and other pacifists saying i just this is against my conscience i cannot do this in those kinds of cases i'm far more persuaded by arguments of conscience and i was wondering why that is and whether it's really anything to do with conscience and perhaps it's more about just not wanting to traumatize people so i think my first thought about those two examples and the contrast, Kieran, is in the war case, you know, pe- you know, people are just citizens of a country, right? And then, you know, in, in the kind of thinking about the great wars when people were conscripted, right, they had no choice. That that's just how things were. Whereas in the in the nearby possible world where there's parliamentary conventions which have whipping or no whipping or whatever. People have chosen to become MPs in a certain sort of system. So then they can't complain if the system then, which they you know decide to go for, uh, go into, then says, well, you have to do this, that or the other. I mean, they made a choice. So that was a compromise they were going to make in order to be an MP. So I think that, for me, that that's that's the difference there in those two cases. Why, why I'd be more far more sympathetic for... Uh, conscientious objections amongst conscripts than uh, than amongst MPs, as it were, or, or amongst presumably then professional armies. Yes, amongst professional armies. That's right. I mean, so there's always a joke, and there's, there's every so often there's a sketch. Isn't there a Monty, famous Monty Python sketch where Eric, Eric Idle comes in and says, "Oh, I, I can't believe this! I've I've been asked to go and fight, right?" And he's a professional soldier. Uh, <laughs> and the joke is, "Well, that's what you signed up to do." He said, "Well, I, there's like death and everything. It's horrible." <laughs> Right. It's, it is I mean, like that's, that's, that's why it's funny. 
but this is what some some people think should be the case with doctors. I mean, doctors doctors should be told early on in their training, yeah. if you take this view, do not enter general practice or anything that involves complicity with abortion. That should be made clear to them early on. And so the question of traumatizing people doesn't come up because they won't be in that position anyway. They will say, well, it's unfair. In fact, they'll say it's discriminatory. And they might even vote religious discrimination. Catholics are not welcome here, for example. That's the that's way it would be framed uh, if it becomes the court. And I think we, we, we're back with the, the desirability of the compromise we talked about earlier. Uh, as Kieran says, you don't want to traumatize people. Although remember that, you know, quite a lot of doctoring is traumatic anyway. I mean, looking at dead bodies. I mean, there are also the things we ask doctors to do that people don't like. But let's say there's a particular sort of moral trauma involved in being pressurized to do something which is deeply against your conscience, asked to be complicity, complicity in, in murder. We want to spare people that. We should also respect people's conscience because it is wrong to encourage somebody to do something that is wrong. And it is wrong to go against your conscience for the reason that Aquinas, I think, convincingly uh, pointed out. So it's wrong to, to put on someone under pressure to do something that is that they consider wrong. Still, we get, we get away from that uh, by simply saying, well, we, we make it clear who's, who's allowed into the profession in the first place. So there's a really interesting case in Russia where the fact that the the Russian state has refused to accept that it is at war with Ukraine, it is merely undergoing a special military operation, means that members of the Russian army can refuse to fight in Ukraine because if they were at war, they would not be legally allowed to refuse to fight um, or resign or, or, or whatever. But because it's not a war, they can refuse to fight even though they are soldiers. I think many of them are professional soldiers, though Russia still has quite a few conscripts, I think. But but it's an interesting thing, you know, at the moment that there are lots of people in Russia being made to fight in Ukraine, and some of them are, are exploiting this loophole, that the fact that it's not a war, according to Russia, but the idea that it, whether or not it's a war is supposed to be the thing that makes a difference. If it's if your country is at war as a citizen of your country, you are compelled to defend the country. Whereas if it's just a, a military expedition, the case for compulsion doesn't make sense. There's an interesting issue about minorities and religious minorities. And I could see how people who are making the case for conscience who are outside of a group might lean harder <laughs> in some cases, on that justification than people within the group. So if you take the issue of, of um, abortion, I could imagine that um, you know people making the case for conscience on this issue who, who aren't themselves pro-life saying, well, there's certain religious groups, Catholics, but then of course lots of Protestant groups as well, who, who, are, who take a pro-life position and, and we need to be non-discriminatory towards them. But then as I think Piers pointed out, you know, lots of pro-lifers, they're not going to be saying, I believe this because I'm a Catholic, this is my own personal views that are in accordance with my Catholic or whatever is faith. They're going to be saying, no, this is, uh, this is murder. So everybody should be pro-life. This is a, a stand, a general stand that everyone should ag agree with, no matter which religion they're from or even if they don't have a religion. So there's an interesting tension there. I mean, maybe there's not a contradiction. Maybe you can both say 
of a group, um, you know, they should get a, a free vote or they should get an exemption because they tend to be of a particular religion. We don't want to discriminate against that religion. And people within that group can say, no, this has got nothing to do with being a member of a particular religion. But nevertheless, to make the first kind of argument when people within the group are making the second kind of argument, you kind of have to say, oh, well, ignore what they're saying. A, a far better understanding of what's going on here is that it is about this uh, special exemption for minorities. I mean, there's a really interesting thing here about liberalism, right? So one of the points of conscience that I've had to think carefully about before is when I was on the job market and I was uh, applying to it, institutions in the US, many of those institutions ask people to sign a statement of faith. If they're going to teach at the university, you have to um, agree to the religious views of the university. And I made a decision just not to apply to any of those jobs. And if I applied to a job that turned out to have one of those unbeknownst to me at the time, I would refuse to accept an offer. And in fact, I did go on to work for a religious college. And after I got the offer, I just said, just to check, you're okay with me not being a believer, right? And they went, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But um, but one of the interesting things about liberalism is it's not that you go, hey, we're not sure whether God really exists. So we're just going to, you know, we're just going to have tolerance for different answers to this question because we collectively lack conviction on this. Um, the college that I ended up working for very much had conviction. It was a Methodist college. They, they thought that God did exist. I was one of the few rather exotic non-believers at the college. And and this was an issue that, you know, I was definitely in a minority group in, in South Central Kansas. But the tolerance and the pluralism isn't, as it were, a lack of conviction. So it should be perfectly compatible with the majority thinking, no, no, everybody should be entitled to abortion. And the minority thinking, no, no, no one should get abortions. And nonetheless, the justification for for the pluralism isn't that lack of conviction. It's that you think it's better to live in a society where people are able to freely have the convictions that they have. Listen, um, super interesting. And we've gone on to all sorts of different things. I think I'm probably going to call an end to that that discussion. Thanks all three of you for joining us. Uh, Kieran, thanks for coming on. First of all, we'll definitely have you back. It was a pleasure. Uh, And Graham, thanks uh, for coming back. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and and Piers, Piers, good to have you back with us as well. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to you for listening. And all being well, uh, you'll listen again to another Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.